Okay, we're going to jump right in. I'm just going to begin to read Mark chapter 11. If you visit our homepage, you'll see every week the passage that we're going to be preaching on today. It is Mark 11 verses 1 through 33. I'm going to read a portion of that now. Let's just dive right in. Verse 1 says, "When Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at Mount, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of the disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, where are you going? Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, <laughs> as if on cue, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom, is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is the word of God. This is the timeless, powerful, supernatural word of God. This story is going to move us today. And partially because actually, as we get to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 11 through 16 is really the, the final week of Jesus' life. Mark devotes one-third of his gospel to, to what is referred to as the Passion Week. Uh, and, and some people say it's, this is uh, sort of a Passion Week gospel with an extended introduction because so much of it focuses on this final week. Now, I want to look at this piece that we open with called the triumphal entry. Many people would be familiar with that term. When Jesus enters the city on this unridden colt. And Steve Lambert of Capitol Hill Baptist, not far from here, talks about the difference between Islam and Christianity, interestingly, by this one particular thing. He says, perhaps the contrast between these two religions is best symbolized by the way Muhammad entered Mecca and Jesus entered Jerusalem. 
Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. Those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca and took control as its new religious, political, and military leader. Today, in Tapkapi Palace in Istanbul, Turkey, Muhammad's purported sword is proudly on display. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, accompanied by his 12 disciples. He was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm fronds, a traditional sign of peace. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the Jews mistook him for an earthly secular king who was to free them from the yoke of Rome, whereas Jesus came to establish a much different heavenly kingdom. Jesus came by invitation and not by force. What a picture. What a contrast. And you got to understand too, it's Passover in Jerusalem. That's what's happening right now. This is the time in the Jewish calendar. And it's swelled to about three times its size. And where Jesus had been sort of veiled and secretive, right? We've watched him do this, don't tell anybody, right? About his, his kingship, about who he is, about the power that he's walking in. He now reveals who he is in this moment. This is his coming on the scene moment. No denying it, no secret, nothing veiled about it. And he is a king, but a very different king than they were expecting. A king nonetheless. And this is our unexpected king. None of this follows the expectations that they have. And this is a big deal, that, that some random guy would, would have this kind of reception because people had seen who he was and what he could do. But, but though we, we know they struggled to understand who he truly was, they, they knew he was someone, right? There was something about this guy. And of course, there are these cries of Messiah. So there's a clue. And he was someone that deserved this kind of reception. But then he goes on, <laughs> after that moment, to curse a fig tree that had no figs, but it wasn't even in season, followed by this drastic uproar in the temple as he expresses this righteous indignation. There's so much happening in this story. And I'm just, I'm like, is he grumpy? Or is he, like, is he in a bad mood because of what awaits him? Obviously, the, the tension and the pressure of what he knows is coming is certainly looming in the atmosphere. But we can't look at this with natural eyes. We have to dig a little bit deeper and go, Lord, what is it that you're trying to, to show us? Is it, is it stress that's making him hungry and causing him to lash out? You'd actually be surprised at how some scholars totally miss what's happening in this passage. I'll read from them in just a moment, but it's pretty wild. Um, back to the triumphal entry of Jesus, though, who comes not like a conquering king, that one might expect, right? He is God, after all, and man. Um, he doesn't come like Muhammad or, or so many others in history. That's how kings came. And he doesn't. He comes humbly, in weakness, under persecution, to bring peace with this band of ragtag followers that barely understood him. Jesus came unexpected. All of this was so unexpected. That is a theme that we just have not departed. It's the title of our series, and it is a clue for us to go, how am I expecting Jesus to come 
in any given moment, day, week, year? And how might he come? How can I continue to remain open? How can my eyes, my heart, my ears, my brain (laughs) shake off the expectations I have of God and Jesus and welcome him as he comes? I love the whole cult piece of this because he doesn't steal it. He just borrows it, right? No, we're going to bring it back. Like he owns everything in the world, of course, but he just borrows it. And, and, and let's not overlook that it happens exactly as he says it will. Where the cult is that it hasn't been ridden on. Like why is, why is that important? It says cult here. Another translation, a translation says donkey or young donkey. That's what a cult is. And first of all, it's not a war horse or a glamorous animal but a notoriously stubborn animal, actually, that has not been broken in by another rider. That is important. Like, can, you ima- can you imagine <laughs> this scene if Jesus is like, oh, I should have gotten one that was broken in. It's bucking all the way into Jerusalem, you know. But, but somehow he just sits on the animal and the animal carries him in. This to me just seems like a picture of Jesus' ability to to tame the most stubborn (laughs) and unwilling. Isn't that good news for you and me? But that is no small part of what's happening. He doesn't beat the poor animal. Somehow his his presence is is able to put the creature at, at ease. You know, when you invite him to come into your life, he's able to put you at ease. That is the power of who he is. That is good news for us. It's not in this account. It's actually in the Matthew account that it also references a, a scripture in Zechariah 9. So it actually says it in Matthew. It doesn't say it here, but it's clearly going on, obviously by that gospel account. But it says in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah was written 500 years before this moment. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the arc of God's story, I mean, he just, he's, this is just easy for him. But it's absolutely mind-boggling when you consider that this very moment was predicted. It's safe to say that, that actually they had no idea what this really meant, what it was written. I mean, it didn't really make sense. Why would a king come on a foal? Um, what this would look like when it all shook out. In fact, this is something very important. I'm going to hover on this point for, for a moment. Oftentimes, the Old Testament does not distinguish actually between the, the, the first coming and the second coming. Do you realize that's true? It doesn't actually distinguish that in its writing. So, so, so actually, those who remember Zechariah 9, and they studied it, and they knew it, they knew their Bibles, they would go, oh, here it is. The king who's coming on a donkey, it's on. Like he's going to conquer everything now. Because actually Zechariah 9 goes on to say all of the things he's going to do. But guess what? He dies. That's his big move. And they've got to be like, this is not what we expected. It's not. The rest of that passage talks about victory. And and what it described has not fully happened. And it won't until he returns again. 
this is why we have to not get sucked into the same trap that the disciples and the people of Israel were. That because the Messiah came the first time, now everything that has been promised will come. That is not true. This is what we have to wrap our minds around. And, and, and actually, much of the promises have to do with his second coming. Do we understand that? That is so important because some of them actually have not been fulfilled, and that's exciting. He came, and he's coming again. This, this donkey is more than just an interesting detail. It's a clear picture of the nature of his first coming versus his second coming. See, those are who are, are full of faith among us, right? And we have, I am, my goodness, and trust for miracles and healing and salvation and revival. Let's not relent. Let's not stop on that. But let's also not be dismayed or confused that it all doesn't happen now. It is not intended to. It didn't then and it doesn't now. They would have been expecting, good, he's on the donkey, Zechariah 9, go for it, Jesus. And then he goes to the cross. And they're like, nope, sorry, take two. Can we do that one more time? We were expecting something different. And I think that there is a misunderstanding among people of faith that we should expect to have all of it now, and it's just a matter of having more faith. No, it's a matter of his plan that is unfolding according to his will because he is sovereign. He did not plan to do it all then, and he is not doing it all now. This is what is called the inauguration of his kingdom, the inbreaking kingdom, not the kingdom now kingdom. That's a misunderstanding that has plagued Christianity, especially charismatic Christianity. It's all available, it's just a matter of faith. That's actually not true. It's been inaugurated, it is breaking in, but it and he has not yet fully come again. This is vitally important. All of what we've been learning in Mark is the inauguration, but it's not the final consummation of what God plans to do. The miracles, the healing, the deliverance, these are all signs of his return, and all of it will be complete when he comes again. I, I want to just, I, I found this great grid, one of the commentators, Daniel Aiken, who we've leaned on in this series, has really helped us. So take a look at this. Go to the last one, uh, one before this. Yeah. So in the, in the first coming, he came to die. In the second coming, he'll come to reign. In the first coming, he came on a little donkey. Next, he's coming on a war horse. That is in the scripture. He came first as a humble servant. He will come as an exalted king when he comes again. He came in weakness. He will come in power. He came to save. He will come to judge. He came as love. He will come in wrath. He came as deity veiled. He will come as deity revealed. He came with 12 disciples. He will come with an army of angels, the Bible says. He came to bring peace. Actually, he will come to make war on evil and put a final end to all of it. He was given a crown of thorns. He will receive a crown of royalty. He came as a suffering servant. He will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is amazing. That is amazing. Because some people chose to bow, chose to proclaim, chose to confess. When he comes again, we will have no choice. Because he will come to reign forever. And now, if you look at the second slide that I had, this is where we live. This is the good news and the bad news. 
Good news, it began. Good news, it's breaking in. Even as uh, Trav was saying this morning, we we're praying last night for uh, Frank and Sue's grandson. And I am, we're praying and we're praying, especially we're praying for the, the, the medication actually to be effective, which is the thing that seemed to turn the tide, this thing that was resistant. And, and we're just praying like we believe in this. We believe it's breaking in. But then as Trav shared, this is such a beautiful picture from Lisa. They were praying and the person passed. That won't happen when he comes again, but now we live in between these things. And it's hard to live in between because we want to live in one or the other. All right, well, let's just not pray. Or, no, it's all here now. It's neither of those. We live in the tension of his first and second coming. So much to be said on that. Let's move on. Mark 11. After this, it says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, we know what's coming in terms of the temple in that little passage that I read. But, but despite what feels like Jesus kind of flying off the handle here, what I find interesting in verse 11 is he kind of takes a look and he walks away. No doubt indignant about what is going on, right? He sees, okay, and he walks away. Does he sleep on it? I don't know. But he just doesn't choose that moment. He's not some impetuous little child who's just kind of, you know, I'm just, you know. He, he's clearly indignant about what's happening here. But he sleeps on it. And he's then measured in his anger. And it's directed at those who are mistreating God's people and misrepresenting him. There's so much to say on this. There's too much. But I want to say what is happening here is that people have come for Passover, right? We know it's swelled to three times its size. They're selling sacrifices in the temple. But they're price gouging. And they're actually giving bad exchange rates. This is what's happening. They're taking advantage. It's like buying a program outside the Super Bowl. You're like, this is a $3 thing and I just paid $30 for it. That's in effect what's been happening. In, in, in AD 66, Josephus, the historian, writes, there were 255,000 lambs that were slaughtered during Passover during that time. Yeah, it's like, it, it's inconceivable because everybody comes and they buy a sacrifice. And, and I don't know if you, you saw where it says, he actually, it, it points out the pigeons. Why does it point out the pigeons? Ironically, the pigeons were the sacrifice on behalf of the poor, and they're gouging on the pigeons. They're marking up the pigeons. And he's going, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. The irony, they're fleecing the people in selling to them. And then this then sets the stage for the cursing of the fig tree. What a strange moment this is, and seemingly kind of inexplicable. Like, why does he do this? It says he was hungry. Was he hangry? Like, is that, you know, what's going on here? I'm, just, I'm hungry. But, but he doesn't do that. In spite of, <laughs> environmental, environmentalists are livid over this, you know. Tree huggers are like, what did this tree ever do to you? I appreciate that. I love trees. Listen, listen here. It says, many scholars actually get this wrong. One scholar, Joseph Klauser, writes, it's a gross injustice on a tree, which was guilty of no wrong. Okay. T.W. Manson, these, these, are, these are our scholars, um, respected. He said, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. The story does not seem worthy of Jesus, one scholar says. There seems to be petulance in it. 
Scottish minister, William Barclay. If any of you are familiar with athe the atheist Bertrand Russell, he basically points to this as the proof that this is not God. What a nut job. That's his thing. He's just a little child. But we've got to go deeper. When we encounter something that casts Jesus in this light, we've got to question. <laughs> we've got to hold the mirror. We've got to go deeper. Here's the thing. It all belongs to Jesus, and he can do whatever he wants in the service of his mission. That's what we're seeing here. Why does this serve his mission? I mean, it is just a tree. But it's a vital illustration of the promise of fruit, the promise of fruit without fruit, which is a grave spiritual error. This is what he just saw in the temple. It all feels very religious, but they're a bunch of hypocrites. So the tree has leaves. It says, come, come to me, I'm vital, but no fruit. Now, it's not yet in season, but actually it should have the beginnings of fruit, right? You know that even a tree that's in full leaf, it's a fruit tree, there's something there. It has nothing. So on one hand, this is just good gardening. Some trees don't bear fruit, and if you want fruit, it's just taking up space. You chop it down. But Jesus actually uses this as an opportunity to illustrate, no, this one is fruitless. It has the deceiving sign of life, with its leaves, but when you look closely, it's all just a ruse. This grand temple with you in your fancy robes and all of the sacrifices, but actually, this isn't about loving God and loving people. It's about ripping them off. It's about self-gain, not self-sacrifices. These sacrifices are meant to honor God on Passover and are just being marked up. It appears religious, but it's a sham. Leaves without fruit. It's this ceremonial foliage designed to camouflage a lack of what? What is the fruit Jesus wants to see? It's simple. It's love. The love of God, the love of people, that's what's satisfied. Love is what we desperately need and feeds those who are hungry. There are people here this morning who have come that just need love to satisfy them. You're hungry. You're hungry like Jesus. And I hope we're not a leafy tree that offers no fruit. This is a convicting passage for the church. Are we the leafy tree? Are we the one that has all of this splendor and beautiful buildings and honestly, even great worship and uh, music and miracles, but not love? I mean, Paul... And Jesus say, if you have all of that stuff, it's just a clanging symbol if you don't have love. This is why we don't, we love the signs of God's grace that point to him in the miraculous. But actually, it is love and the love of God that we are after. That stuff can be a clanging gong if we're not careful. I think this actually makes sense of of what comes next. I want to read what is called the lesson from the withered fig tree. Verse 20, it says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. I mean, he must be shocked. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. I love that statement. It's easy. Have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. He says a lot here. But one of the things he does is that love and communion with God and one another is the most fundamentally important aspect of our faith. Peter's so shocked by the fact that the tree is withered to its roots. And so then what we often do is we take this mountain passage totally out of context. Jesus is not saying, go out there and move mountains. He's going, this is not impressive. Imagine the most impossible thing that you can do. Imagine the most impossible scenario. Even that becomes possible when you have faith in God. This is not the context of, let me tell you what miracles you can now perform. It's, let me show you that your minds are limited as to what God can actually do. But this, this is actually perplexing, right? Because he says, whatever you ask. I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. I've prayed for many things that I've not gotten. Why is that? How do we square that with this passage? I, I think we have to be careful because you might say, well, you just need more faith. Careful. That is a very unhelpful interpretation and not his point at all. First, this mountain is hyperbole, intentional exaggeration to make a point, like gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. If it weren't, Christian history would be littered with mountains being thrown at the sea all over the place. We don't, that's not what we see. Now we know that he's saying anything is possible, but also you may say, well, no, it's like the mountains in life. Maybe, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, I just physically cursed a tree and I am talking about a physical mountain. I've not just now departed into some totally different framework. Are you with me on this? Because I feel like this is what we can, this is what we can offer, is not taking this out of context. He's also not talking about healing or deliverance or miracles. He's been demonstrating those things all along. He takes that for granted and doesn't even reference it here. Isn't that interesting? But no matter what the outcome, and we know this one is, is, is exaggerated, Jesus is not outcome focused. His point is not now start yelling at mountains. That's not what he's suggesting. What is he suggesting? Man, whatever we get, how do we get that? Whatever we ask, how do we get that? He's not setting up an equation here because our temptation is toward what? Transaction, as Trav was teaching us a few weeks ago. We want transactions. What do I do to get that? How do I get that? And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm just saying this is nothing, and I'm pointing you to him. I'm not pointing you to the mountain. It's not what I'm trying to make a point about here. He is saying the reason I can curse a tree or hurl a mountain or whatever I ask is because I am one with him. Not because that's what I'm focused on. The point he's trying to make here is not all the cool stuff you can do with your faith. In fact, remember last week, do you remember James and John? I want to read what they said, Mark 10, 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. By this measure, it would just be like, sure, whatever you ask in my name. Wow, they just said the magic words. But what does Jesus say? No, basically. Well, that doesn't add up. What's going on here? 
Jesus, you just said, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, it will be yours. But Jesus doesn't actually say no, does he? What he says to James and John is, you, you don't know what you're asking. This is so important because we ask for the wrong things. Now pay attention because I'm thinking about this and I'm going, but how could, be, how could asking for healing be a bad thing? Doesn't God want to heal all people all the time? It would not seem so. Back to my first and second coming. We live in the tension of those two spaces. It is so hard because we want to live in one or the other. Stop praying all the time. But actually we go to him and then we leave it in his sovereign hands. Jesus helps us in the book of John. I'm so grateful there's four gospels, right? Because Mark is not trying to fully orb this idea in these verses. He's just giving an account for what he's aware of happened in this story, right? Then we have John, we have Mark, we have Luke, or we have Matthew and we have Luke. I want to just toggle over to John for a second to help us because I think he adds dimension to this explanation. And again, it uses that whatever you wish, whatever you ask, it will be done for you. But John 15, 7 through 11 says this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my, there's that fruit again, and so prove to be my disciples. What is the fruit? What's the fruit? Well, here he goes. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love. What does that look like, Jesus? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just I have, as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that you may, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He says abide five times in those five verses. This is not a put a coin of faith in the slot and get out the miracles kind of transaction. He's trying to describe and fully orb something of living in him and him living in us that is not outcome focused. Our focus lies there and where it should be and then these become the products by his grace and his power of our lives. There's that word fruit, not figs now, but spiritual fruit. What is it? Love. Can you see that he mentions this, this power of prayer, but he makes the focus of his plea not mustering more faith. It's not about mustering more faith. We have to get that. Otherwise, our focus becomes how much faith can we have to do X? This is not what he's saying. He says what it looks like, abiding in his love looks like keeping his father's commands. Focus on that. Give yourself to that. Because when you give yourself to that, when you are enveloped in that, whatever you want to happen for the sake of what you're doing, as massive and even as impossible as it seems, will happen. That's what he's saying. Daniel Aiken says this, true and believing prayer is not attempting to get God to change his will to fit our plans. It is a passionate pursuit to see God's plans accomplished in us. Mountains moving is his job. We give ourselves to faith and abiding in him. Miracles are what only he can deliver. And then we, we leave the rest in his sovereign hands. Be careful not to dress up a desire to control the outcome in Christian language. This is what we want, and I can slap a verse on it, so now I'm the one who determines this. Just have more faith. Once you do, who does that put it on? 
Who does that put the miracles on? Us. We have to be so careful because the unbelieving world has to know where our faith actually rests and who it rests on. Final piece. Oof, time is not my friend. A few more minutes. I want to end with this last little passage. Verse 27, it says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> Smart aleck. But it, here's the thing. Look at how they're coming. It's such a stark contrast of how they're coming. They don't want to submit to his authority. They're doing everything they can to worm out of that. Clue, do the opposite. They refuse to honestly examine the evidence. By what authority? I don't know. Look around. Look at all of the things that he is doing in service of people that you are not doing. Make an honest evaluation of the facts and the evidence. And then finally, they actually just fear men more than they fear God. That comes up twice in this passage we're studying today. They just fear men. What of these things are playing upon you in any given moment? Because we are tempted not to want to submit to the authority of God. We, 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 we don't want to honestly examine the evidence. And, and we fear man more than we fear God. I think if I had to put a heading on this little passage, it's you're not the boss of me. I, I think that's how we sometimes come to him. And we were talking about this on Thursday and I had shown that, that grid. Can I see that grid one more time, Olu? Because I just think that is so powerful. Look, I stole it flat out. This is from Daniel Aiken. This is not my genius, but I went, that is genius because it just lays it out so clearly. And Pat said this, he said, how we receive him and his kingdom now will determine how he receives us when he returns. It's good news and bad news. Zechariah 9 in those following verses says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they will shine on his land. That has not fully happened yet, but it will. When he comes back, how we receive his kingdom now will determine how he receives us when he returns. Can I invite the band up? Because I would love to just, in this moment, we sing this song called Lion and the Lamb. Why is that? Because he came as a lamb, but he's coming back as a lion. Just another picture of his first and second comings. And we trust him in the middle space. We trust his good sovereign judgment in the middle space. And we pray like crazy. Celeste and I were praying in our bed last night for little Nicholas in Germany. And he came out with healing this morning. We just went, yes, Lord. We will not stop, but we'll entrust him to you. We entrust all of these things to you, Lord.